feel that people often don't or can't understand you or your problems? Well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Do you feel that there are many barriers in your life which you have no control over? N- no. I'm <laughs> sorry, I immediately started thinking of a long answer. <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. It's yes or no. Oh, fuck this. <laughs> I'm I'm a centrist right now. <laughs> Will you take a stand? Hell no. <laughs> Do you often ask for help from others and or feel like few people are willing to help you? That's two yes, questions. Yes to the first answer yeah. and no to the second. Yeah, because I have friends. So. I'm not an ungrateful piece of shit. Yeah. Do you feel like you often don't receive the attention or appreciation that you deserve? No. no. <laughs> I'm so loved. Oh, I have a podcast. So. Yeah. Do people often complain that you don't listen to them when, in fact, you feel like they don't listen to you? Did my mom write this? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Do you, feel, <laughs> do you feel like most other people have lives that are much easier than yours? Uh, no. no. Do you fight with close friends and loved ones often? No. no. If so, is it usually their fault? I mean, yeah. If I'm fighting, it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've pushed me. Yeah. I'm a peace lover. <laughs> Do people suddenly drop contact with you with no explanation and refuse to communicate with you again? I feel like I'm usually the person who would do that. Not that that's happened often. Uh, no? That question triggered me. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Last question. Do you often feel helpless, like you have little opportunity to improve your life? No. No. Because I'm an ecosexual. So. I'm a girl boss. <laughs> Fucking. I just get up and I handle that shit. <laughs> Well, Gabe, Arouge, listeners, if you answered yes to more than half of the questions above, then please carefully consider the fact that you may be an emotional vampire. Is that like a dark empath? Um, This is according to Mark Manson. Mark is a three-time number one New York Times bestselling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Um, Sounds like he's an emotional vampire. I don't know. Also, what dudes? Where did <laughs> right? the term come from? Can we track this? Oh, I don't know. It's an Anton LaVey coinage. I don't know who that is. Who's that? He's the Church of Satan guy. What the hell? He used psychic vampire, the term psychic vampire, not emotional vampire, yeah. but he used it to mean a spiritually or emotionally weak person who drains vital energy from other people. Psychic vampire might be a little more in vogue as a term. Sounds cooler. It does. It does. does. What if a vampire was a psychic? A question boldly explored in the Twilight series. By Stephanie Meyer. So if you haven't guessed already, this episode will be about vampires. We're recording live in my tomb of a living room. It's very cold. We're in our coffins, I mean. Yeah, it's dark in here. Should we introduce ourselves now? Like, I yeah, never know yeah, we always to forget to do it. So th- yeah. you are listening to The Naval Gaze. I'm one of your hosts, Aruj. I'm Gabe, your other host. I'm Molly, the third host. <laughs> the host. Another good <gasps> Stephanie oh. Meyer nod. Dude, I fucking love the host. I never read, I it. Never read it, but I heard I'm it was like, crazy. It was honestly so good. Is it a she- mind fuck? Yeah. <laughs> she should have just released that first. Is it thrilling and cerebral? It is was, it a, I wouldn't call it cerebral. <laughs> is it like a sexual inception? Did they fuck? There's absolutely no fucking in the movie Inception. Which is you know a what? digression I that something? I will not go on. Can I say something? What? 
I've never seen Inception. Well, you we can we can watch it. For okay, now. I was saving it for marriage, but <laughs> um, <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, do we have? <laughs> this is gonna be a very edgeable episode, guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we picked vampires because it's like an easily obsessible topic. Most people start their obsessions from a young age. I personally started replicating the behaviors of vampires at a very young age. There's several home videos that my parents took when I was a kid to set the scene. Night vision camera. And they're like, where's Gabe? He's not in his bed. And they go in my room and I'm obviously not in my bed. And they're like kind of laughing to themselves. It's very Blair Witch Project. They're like, where's Gabe? We're going to find him. And they go into our, um, what was our family computer room? Not to age myself. (laughs) And then they open the closet and I'm sleeping almost upright with my arms across my chest like a vampire. But yeah, I've always been fascinated by vampires. As like a freaky kid. I was definitely a weird kid. I don't know if I was a freaky kid. I think I wanted to be. But I used to write lots of stories about me becoming a vampire princess. Like the princess of the underworld. Being betrothed to my vampire beloved named Rudolph. That slave. How I would I love to read that. I've never heard this. Um, I, was, Why were you keeping this from me, first uh, of all? <laughs> gatekeeping. <laughs> I would draw pictures of myself, like with a very skinny neck and very straight hair, which my hair is not straight. And I would also do like two big dots on my neck with little trickles coming Ooh. out. And I would also show everybody the two horizontal moles that are on one side of my neck and be like, Check it out. Ooh. I'm a vampire. You would, like, come back from spring break or summer break, and you're, like, acting different in class. Something happened to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you, though. (laughs) I'm forbidden. I knew people that did that with mermaids. Um, Oh, who am I? You can't even fake that shit, though. Like, you... (laughs) They were for real doing the shit, though, that was like, oh my god, I'm threatened! (laughs) I'm turning! <laughs> they started like flailing. The, yeah, they were kind of like flippering away. Um, but anyway, I wouldn't say I was a normal kid, but I wasn't super fascinated with this element of the supernatural. I was more of like a strong Percy Jackson Greek mythology kid. But then the Twilight series, my pivotal moment with that was I remember in fifth grade, this one kid who was later the linebacker of my high school football team decided to do his book report on Breaking Dawn to be quirked up and different. We were all 10-year-olds, and Breaking Dawn was famously a book that had sex in it. We were all like, oh my god, you're so crazy, he did Breaking Dawn. And then I was like, I need to see what the fuss is about. So I boldly afterwards was checking out like the entire Twilight series and reading it at the age of 10. Not because I wanted to watch them fuck, or read them fucking. <laughs> but because I wanted to know how you got to that point. And I really think... <laughs> That's so anthropological of you. <laughs> yes, I was really conducting a study, if you think about it. And I think that was honestly my first interaction with like vampire media. Straight up just Twilight. Can we talk about being a Twihard now so that we don't... Yeah, yeah. Like we, should do, we should do our disclosures because about Twilight right now. I was yeah. so deeply obsessed with Twilight. I remember begging my mom to read it, and when she was finishing, or she was reading New Moon on the toilet, I vividly remember this, she was on at the scene 
where Edward leaves and it's like the pages that are like September. Oh my god. <laughs> and shit. I was I was on the other side of the bathroom door sobbing. <laughs> yeah. Because I knew she was reading that part. Oh my god, I was so obsessed with this series. I also went to the Breaking Dawn release party in costume and they had an Edward versus Jacob debate and it was 12-year-olds versus grown-ass women and it's that, like midnight true. in the fucking what was equivalent of a Barnes and Noble here. Yeah, I really love Twilight and I didn't really know much about it, but I did know that like we weren't allowed to read it at our Catholic school, so I'd go home and read it and I got really obsessed with it and it was like Oh my god, what's happening to my body? Yes. Like they're laying next to each other in a field and I've never What does it mean? I've never like imagined, let alone experienced this kind of like adoration mm-hmm. or connection before. So it was like an awakening for you. Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. And it was just like it was so alluring. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like so romanticized how helpless she is and how worked up she is. And I watched them all and I would like do all my nighttime stuff and all my homework really quickly so then I'd be like, Mom, if I if if you take me to family video right now, we can rent the Twilight movie and I can watch it and I will be in bed by 8.30. And she'd be like, yes, we can. Before we transition into vampires. the episode proper, yeah, before we become vampires, <laughs> um, we have to ask the essential question, Team Edward or Team Jacob? Well, when I was reading it, Team Jacob... Really? Interesting. Yeah. I would not have expected that. Me neither. I thought he was hotter, and I didn't like that Edward abandoned Bella. True. <laughs> Me and my abandonment mm. issues. <laughs> Real shit, brother. Um, so what happened between my childhood reading Twilight and now was that I read Harry Potter. So I read it, like, out of order. Most kids read Harry Potter and then got into Interesting. Twilight as a teen. But yeah. then, like, my, like, sort of tween obsession was Harry Potter. And then I, like, came back to Twilight as a teenager or a young adult and be like, wait, actually, this slaps. Like, this is so fun. And then I became Team Edward. Okay. I was definitely Team Edward, but more so, I was Team Jake-word. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, what about you, Rouge? I was diehard Team Edward. Like, I literally, nothing could have kept you me. You would be. Yeah, literally. I was like, this is the perfect man. He's withholding. Yeah, literally. Like, he was so, like, he just treated her like dog shit. And then later it was like, wow, I was wrong, and I love you. And I was like, I need this. And then I think the movies really didn't change that at all for me either. We have a peer-reviewed study (laughs) um, about the demographics of this issue within our listenership. Oh, the question is actually not Team Edward or Team Jacob. It's more important. It's who tops. Edward or Jacob. Yeah. In that couple, Bella's not involved. We, we really need gaff about her. Yeah. So, 26% of you, Edward. Edward tops. We are a minority. Um, only a... The face Gabe just made, you guys. <laughs> only <Go> on. <laughs> only slightly more, 30%, said that Jacob is going into Edward's hole. And um, a, a 44% of you, a majority... Copped out and yeah. said, it is not for mortal minds. That was know. that was pissing me off because I need you guys to stand up. This is not a podcast for centrists. Like, make some fucking noise. Realistically, I don't think Edward would top. I don't think he would have topped Bella either. I think what? Bella was in his booty hole. <laughs> like, 
He has such a <laughs> complex about biting her. Like, clearly, if we're going to get psychosexual with it, like, he has a weird penetration complex. Obviously, he would be super annoying about wanting to get topped. He'd be the most pathetic bottom ever. That's it. Like, that's all I'm going to say. This, on says, this says a lot about you, actually. <laughs> um, I'm being objective here. Oh, right, right. <laughs> Arush is drawing conclusions about my character that are not true. I think Edward Tops. I think he's sexy and strong, so... <laughs> you just think you know everything about gay people? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> um, anyway. Sorry for edge bullying. <laughs> it sounds like you're saying edge boying. <laughs> oh my god, I would never do that. <laughs> you would never edge a boy? I would never. <laughs> I'm a right. <laughs> edging is for girls, which, like, you know, we can discuss that later. No, edging is for boys. Edging is for boys. What? I'm always a minority on this podcast. Like, literally. You get your ass off the milking table. <laughs> milk? Milk? What's a milking table, mom? I'm not doing this right now. No, I'm yeah. serious. Milking. <laughs> you can- Are you choking <laughs> oh my god there's a nasty like thing from the bottom of my sock that was- <laughs> molly was sucking on her sock <laughs> it depends on what you're milking so you can just milk the cock but oh often god. there's prostate milking where you're stimulating the pro- i don't know why yeah. i'm doing emotion <laughs> you're, you're so st- you're on a table let's um, produce an image like a massage table with a hole in it Okay. See, that's why I'm like, you would never edge a boy? I, I, I can see you on the other end of that milking table. wanted to talk about kind of our methodology for the episode usually we have a structure where we do our piece of media at the end but like molly was talking about earlier vampires are very obsessible and we all have our own rich histories with them as we kind of described earlier so we wanted to look at different pieces of media and kind of do a tracing of different themes that we've noticed this is loosely broken up by time and There were different ways that we could have structured this episode, but this is just the one that we thought would be the most cohesive. It's not meant to be an inclusive list. I also don't know if you could ever do that in one episode. This is going to be a very media-heavy episode. At the beginning of each segment, we're going to kind of list off some pieces of media that we'll be discussing. You know, given that vampires aren't real, it couldn't really be anything else but a media episode. So we're (laughs) going to kind of start with the beginning of the vampires we know it in the contemporary media landscape. Across time, there have been many creatures that could be a vampire, but the vampire as we know it originates from a Slavic word. I don't know what specific language, but it was basically vampire or dampir. D-H-A-M-P-I-R. <laughs> what? Dumper? Dumper. <laughs> the dumper. The word vampire first appeared in English in 1732. These were from news reports about vampire quote-unquote epidemics in in Eastern Europe. And what they were kind of reporting on was 
the birth of this monstrous myth that was coming about. There's a lot of short stories that were collected from this time period of various creatures that would just get called vampires. They were more like ghouls or goblins or even like zombies. So these short stories had a huge range. There's one about what's basically a zombie dog. This man mistreats his dog and then the dog comes back from the dead and attacks him, Mm -hmm. which is like pretty obvious ethical story there like very not, ecosexual very <laughs> ecosexual um there's one about this girl goes and disturbs a shroud or she moves a coffin lid she like desecrates a grave basically and because she is such a shitty person like a tornado appears in a church and like sweeps her up and that's oh, the vampire story that's interesting that's so um, sick yeah um the albanian word dampir appears, according to like some etymological research, to come from dam, the word for tooth, and pure, to drink. So there is some degree to which like that is in the origins of the word. But mm-hmm. as we can see, I mean, like if they're being represented as tornadoes and blood, sometimes isn't even part of the picture. Then... Yeah. There's a particular short story among this collection, which I think were gathered mostly from like the Russian countryside. And it's the story of the soldier and the vampire. The soldier is returning from war and he passes by a graveyard. And there's this man being nefarious and cackling in the graveyard. (laughs) And so the soldier walks up and is like, what are you doing? Is it sinful? And this vampire just like tells him his plan, as villains do. And he's like, you know, I've been terrorizing this town. and I'm going to go like suck the blood of some hot young babe. And the soldier's like, okay, cool. And so the soldier follows him and foils his plan. There's like a kerfuffle where they don't understand him. But what's important is that... The soldier ends up kind of representing the glory of God by intervening with this vampire's wrongdoing in the town by preventing, you know, he prevents it from wreaking havoc on this village, even though it's not really his duty. You start to get this idea of vampires are purposefully interfering with human society and with God's will. But as humans, it's our duty to interrupt them. And so I would say that that particular short story from this collection is representative of the xenophobic anxieties we started to see Mm -hmm. with that news report I mentioned earlier, where they're like, some sort of moral sickness is happening in Eastern Europe. Definitely there's elements from the short story collection, which I didn't know about until Gabe mentioned, that appear in one of the earliest vampire novellas, which actually predates Dracula by about 20 years. And I think often people think that Dracula is one of the first literary representations of vampires, but it's actually the novella Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. And this was written in 1872. Carmilla is really unique because it's actually a lesbian story, which I remember realizing that this had predated Dracula and been like, okay, transgressive. I feel like you didn't get a lot of those lesbian undertones in a lot of fiction written at this time. And so when I was learning about this, I was like in a college class about gothic fiction. And this was definitely one of like the earlier works that we explored. And Carmilla doesn't turn into a bat the way Dracula does, but she does turn into a cat. And so there is definitely like that flexibility in form, this sense of terrorizing local beautiful women. I think that's also a very consistent theme in vampire literature. And that makes sense with just in general how we construct monsters, right? oh, like these outsiders are coming in to prey on our people and our women. That generally helps construct this evilness. But I think what I was the most interested in was that kind of like lesbian element of deviance because what I think is really unique about Carmilla is there is a degree to which you have like the predator-prey relation between Carmilla and the protagonist of the story, who's also the narrator, and her name is Laura. 
And Laura, all of this is told in her perspective. And she feels this immense desire for Carmilla as well and articulates it, which I thought was really, really interesting for something written at that time. And there's this one passage in particular that I can remember that was like, Sometimes after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure. Renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with a tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardor of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes, she drew me to her, and her hot lips traveled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper almost in sobs, You are mine. You shall be mine. And you and I are one forever. Something that I want to keep thinking about as we continue talking about different examples is the way that vampires touch. I feel like there's so much emphasis mm-hmm. on vampires' hands and skin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, definitely from that passage. And I mean, she feels so alive here, I think is also interesting. Like this concept of being undead, being a dead thing, or um, preying on the living and that sort of thing. But especially in this passage, I mean, if you didn't know it was like a vampire story, you'd be like, wow, these yeah. are two two women exploring each other's bodies. I feel like for so long, being in proximity to a vampire and in proximity to vampirehood, like the, like the potential to become one, that is always a very sensuous thing. It's enthralling, it's embodied, it's a lot of times sexy. It's something that can be covetable or even like a thrill-seeking behavior. It reminds me of in like Victorian times or whatever when people started getting tuberculosis. Beauty standards were established based on the sickliness. Oh. Yeah. They love the sickliness, the rosy cheeks, the like almost on the verge of fainting all the time. It's a privilege to be dying and not dead. Yeah. Right? And so I think Mm. vampires kind of, they're in that perpetual stasis of being undead. There's a power in not succumbing to disease. Right. I mean, I think that's what makes them seem powerful in comparison to the humans that they're in relation to in all these stories is the humans are much more vulnerable and they don't really have the undead option. Carmilla doesn't focus very much on turning others. Carmilla is really the only vampire in the story and her terrors and havoc that she wreaks is across time. And there's actually an interesting amount of anagrams with the names. She will come back as different versions of herself and her original name was like Malarca and then she goes by Carmilla. There's like another anagram version in there. So that's I think another bit that we see in a lot of vampire stories that happens later on. Like coming back as your own ancestor kind of doing the same thing across time because you can, because it works. What's the ending of Carmilla? In the ending of Carmilla, she is ultimately staked through the heart and her head is cut off and she is burned to really kind of knock her out once and for all. And it's very similar to the soldier story where there's basically some good person walking around that happens to have this knowledge about these creatures and effectively like dispatches this threat. I didn't actually know that much about Carmilla. Like, I knew it existed. But it's amazing how many similarities it has with Dracula. So, yeah, yeah. So in Dracula, it actually begins with kind of a land issue. The main character, Jonathan, or at least one of the main characters, it's an epistolary novel, so there's multiple main characters. 
I think he's basically like a real estate dude. Like he's not really an agent. <laughs> no. <he's- laughs> I'm imagining him in like a really too tight polo now. <laughs> really. He's helping Count Dracula arrange some land, purchasing a house near London. So he oh. begins with this anxiety of Eastern European people encroaching on Western Europe. Pretty much right off the bat, Dracula is described as this slightly tactless bestial, antiquated man. He has manners, but they're very antique Antique. and old. Mm. They're not really relevant to the bustling, hypermodern life of London in what was the 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 late 1800s. Um, And he also is a noble, right? Because Carmilla originates from like the House Karnstein. So there's this sense of noble lineage, but not fitting in because you are a relic of the past. Yeah. And so Jonathan ends up in Budapest, kind of on Dracula's land, and takes refuge in his castle. And a lot of shit happens. Like, I won't go through all of it, but suffice to say, Dracula has a fuck ton of powers. He's very strange. He's always, like, crawling up the side of the castle and turning into a <laughs> wolf. And, like, he's... Okay, hot. <laughs> I know. He's kind of sexy in the book. The descriptions are very beautiful. Um, the queerness in Dracula is, like, something that so many people have written about, and there's so many things to talk about. But the detail that always stuck out to me is... At a certain point, Dracula takes blood from the men he has captive, infuses it into women, and then drinks blood directly from the women. Hmm. Which is an interesting detail when you think about the fact that Bram Stoker, the author, was close with Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde's girlfriend later married Bram Stoker. Wow. Interesting. So he was sucking Oscar Wilde's blood, so to speak. But there's a lot of things like that where the... Anything that's homosexual or homosocial is passed through the proxy of the women. That's so interesting. The way that Dracula is slain is this character Van Helsing comes in. And Van Helsing is a religious figure, but he's also a scientist. So there's this interesting messaging of you need old things that are specific to your culture to defeat that which is ancient in another culture. But you also need you know, whatever is modern in your culture because you're not antiquated and savage like these. That's some trust science shit. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so it's with Van Helsing and Jonathan and all these other characters that they're able to, I think that they end up staking Dracula. I can't remember. They do all sorts of ridiculous shit. I think a lot of myths about vampires and how to ward them off and slay them came from this story. I think the garlic is from Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. When you guys were talking about noble lineages and how they tend to be traced through antiquity or like, like antiquity is implied through lineage. It made me think about the importance of blood Mm -hmm. in monarchic societies. Yeah. And like how much basically incest was happening because all the families were related and like the way that you keep power is by retaining your own blood. It's the irony of blood purity. No, exactly. And because then a bunch of people like ended up being hemophiliacs because in the Russian royal family. Yeah, Yeah, because of the way that mitochondrial DNA was being passed. (laughs) Molly's looking right at me right now. When their shit got (laughs) fucked up. When their shit got fucked up because of how pure their blood was. It's fascinating how there's multiple types of blood-based anxiety within the vampire mythos because Mm -hmm. there's that and then there's also the anxiety that these savage foreigners are coming and they're going to impregnate your women. They're going to Mm -hmm. pollute your bloodline Mm -hmm. with their faulty subpar blood because it's not just about the weird homosexual 
undertones in Dracula. It's like he is cucking Jonathan. He's cucking Van Helsing by right. mocking them and drinking their blood via. I think it's Mina and Lucy. Yeah. Yeah. Via bitch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he literally fucked your bitch. The proxy is just very interesting. I think that makes me wonder, like, Carmilla and Laura don't have a proxy. They're able to have this experience one-to-one. That's definitely, I think, tied into the different, I guess, like, social hang-ups that people had about male-male queerness versus female-female queerness and what can we represent on the page. It reminds me of how straight men are weirdly paranoid that gay men will steal their girlfriends. Yeah, there's, I guess there's a fear that a, like a woman will steal another woman away. No one's scared that the men are getting stolen away culturally, which they should be, but like. <laughs> when the game's fear, around. <laughs> yeah. The fear, the fear is always that the woman is going to be stolen. So it's interesting how Dracula, with all of his weird gay shit, is like, the real victim is always the woman. That's, I think, a similarity in Carmilla and Dracula is like these helpless women and then the strong Victorian men with their science and reason and a little dash of like, okay, Western European religiousness are going to go in and save the day. And that's definitely, I think, a relic of this time. Oh, gosh, I don't know how I don't know a lot about Nosferatu. I do know that it was loosely based off of Dracula. And Mm -hmm. this is sort of an iteration on the Orientalism and xenophobia that we see in the kind of origin of the vampire myth. It develops into something that's specifically targeting Jewish people. It's more of an anti-Semitic portrayal. I don't know. Have either of you watched Nosferatu? All I know about Nosferatu is when um, the episode of Spongebob with the hash slinging Yeah! <laughs> and it was Wait. Nosferatu the whole time. I don't remember that. You don't? No. Well, they're just like scared shitless of the hash slinging the slasher. And then everything ends up having like an explanation. All of this scary phenomenon. Except they're like, oh, well then who? who is turning the lights on and off and then it cuts just like a still image of Nosferatu from the movie and he's like grinning and like flipping the lights (laughs) well it's interesting I think maybe at the time Nosferatu was legitimately scary but he's become kind of a joke and I think that's because Mm. he we've seen that caricature so many times every time I've seen Nosferatu mentioned it's the fact that it's an unauthorized and unofficial adaptation Bram Stoker's heirs sued over the adaptation. Mm. So they tried to like get the like all copies of this movie destroyed, but some of it saved. And then it's allegedly an influential masterpiece of cinema and the horror genre. These are some great pieces to start our vampire discussion because they solidify that the vampire is a very Catholic monster. You know, it's anyone who is an enemy of Catholicism is a vampire. They're like, we have to be the only blood drinkers around here. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Communion and shit. It's almost like a defensiveness about the weird archaic rituals of Catholicism. Oh, totally. Yeah. I also think it's good to open with these, especially like the Eastern European folk tales or uh, fairy tales that you outlined earlier because I think it lays out that kind of the central ideas that we've come upon as we've been talking about this is that vampires are almost always a vehicle for some kind of cultural anxiety. Something is invading mm-hmm. your women and your blood. Yeah, it's I think a really good vehicle for like racist fears, fears of LGBT behavior. 
the reason we wanted to start here, right, is not just for chronological purposes, not just because I wanted everyone to know about Carmilla, but because we're so interested in how did we start from here and get to the point of Twilight and all of its, you know, subsequent suns. I don't know. It reminds me of those memes that will like have like nine eleven as like the first. Um, oh, domino. like the dominoes. Yeah, yeah domino <laughs> in a series, and then it ends with like some completely random shit, or it'll be like World War Two and like tentacle porn or whatever. So Bram Stoker, Oscar Wilde, Walt Whitman love triangle is yeah. the first domino, and the final one is three hundred and sixty five days. How? <laughs> because that is a response to Fifty Shades of Grey, which was. Twilight fanfic. Twilight fanfic. We're going to jump forward over 50 years because we really don't care about continuity. No, seriously. Nothing everything, important happened. During everything this. between 1929 and 1976, flop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a gap. Oh, yeah. And we come back strong in the 70s um, with Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. We're going to start with that piece of media and then kind of explore mostly movies up until Twilight. So we have 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s to discuss. Molly, do you want to tell us a little bit about Anne Rice? Oh my god. Okay, so I love Anne Rice. Me too. Um, I will say that I have not read any of Anne Rice's books, but I have read A. and Roquelaure's books. I have two! Are you shitting me? Wait, who is this? Okay, A. and Roquelaure is Anne Rice's erotic fiction pen name. Oh, (laughs) She wrote um, the Sleeping Sleeping Beauty Beauty trilogy. Yeah, it's a quartet. A quartet. Oh, nobody makes those anymore. Okay, we have to do an aside about just that really quick. Right? It's like one of like the nastiest, raunchiest. It was so filthy. Can I get like a recap? This is a world in which every kingdom has to give a tithe of of one of their royal sexy young people. Sexy young people to another kingdom. And they go to like the main part of the kingdom where all there are all these princes and royal people and they're all dirty sex pests and it's basically just sort of like a sadomasochistic monarchy yeah and they're kind of just trained there to give and please so that later they can become benevolent rulers or whatever like point being the point being that you think it's so nasty and filthy in book one and then book two takes a hard turn into pony play (laughs) yeah And I haven't read that. That's what I had to tap out. It's just all pony play. Like they act like horses. I'm not really into that. I know. Had I had to stop. I was like, you lost me. Like I love filth, but I hate horses. I like sadomasochism, but pony play. It's just like too corny. Anyway. Anyway, I wanted to give lip service to that because I think it's just like. Yeah. So uh, we're experts because we've never read an Anne Price yes. novel. <laughs> but I just, I just think it's so slay that this woman has had such an insane arc in her literary career because so she's written yeah the, this like dirty, nasty, filthy, erotic fiction, and then she's also written some of the best-selling, most iconic vampire novels of the 
late 70s and 80s. Right. And then also has written, like, born-again Christian religious material. Oh, shit, really? Yes, I'm, I believe so. Yeah, I think she was a, a born-again Christian. I remember her having an ancient Egypt phase where she was writing, like, mummy fiction and, like, what? Ramses the Great came back or whatever, but I didn't know she went Christian mode. Ramses. Oh, she got a fuck-ass bob. <laughs> <laughs> she has a fuck-ass bob. Yeah, Christian that. literature. Yeah. Uh, like, this all phenomenon. comes together. For sure, yeah. Um, I guess Catholicism was, like, her sect of Christianity that she got into again. Um, and you're right, Arush, she was writing stuff about Egypt, but it was, like, when Christ was in Egypt. And then, of course, the whole Old Testament and stuff like that. But I guess later she distanced herself from Christianity again. She's anyway, a queen. I so, feel like I love her. I do, too. I mean, I read her books when I was, like, in junior high, and I didn't really understand what the fuck they were saying, but I did know that they were being gay. They were quite gay. Yes. I was not really picking up on the incest... Wait, what? Yeah, so the family dynamic in Interview with a Vampire is very fucked up. So they end up basically adopting a child vampire. Yes. And she forms a questionable relationship with... Brad Pitt? Yeah. Louis? Literally yeah. cannot remember. Yes, yeah, that's Louis. Yeah. They have L names. It's like, I'm going to confuse them. And the they're both... <laughs> it's the L word. <laughs> the L word is Lestat. Um, but I mean, that's another major thing. Like we were talking about being your own ancestor. Like oh. incest is a major player in, in a lot I've of vampire fiction. I've never picked fiction. up on that. They really toned it down in the movie. In the movie, right? But okay. in the book, it's like, you know, they conspire to kill the other father. Like that's so fucking that's crazy. That's so Electra complex. Yeah. Killing your gay dad. That's Homophobic. Fucked. The book released at a very good time because, you know, post-war, I think America was really searching for its own identity apart from Europe, but also in relation to Europe. And so we started to form some new ideas, some new iterations of our previous racist ideas and developing this hyper-masculine, you know, I mean, I guess really this is the formation of the American macho male as we mm -hmm. know it today. Like an all-American guy. Really came to life post-sexual revolution, late 70s, early 80s. And then so after Anne Rice's book, we see a whole host of vampire movies like The Lost Boys and Near Dark came out in the same year, 1987. And both of those deal with this anxiety about like the youth counterculture. Are they going to be the correct kind of macho masculine men? And all these dudes are like super hot and beefy and they've got leather jackets. And then kind of in the mid to late 90s, we have Blade and From Dusk Till Dawn. It's all these masculine, sexy portrayals of vampires where they really don't want you to think about the latent sociocultural anxieties that are within them. It's very repressed core. It's so repressed. First of all, like watching an interview with a vampire, I couldn't stop thinking about how gay Louis and Lestat are for each other. And like, also I was thinking a lot about consent, what it means to turn someone else. Lestat is obviously getting off on bringing Louis to the brink of death and then letting him, and literally edging him 
there. I mean, there's so much about ownership, I think, yeah. that comes up around this time. Which makes sense. I mean, like, this is pre-Reagan and then, like, influenced by the Reagan era. So I think that's such a huge shift to go from balls out collectively, like, as a society, and then going back to, like, actually, that's not who we are anymore. Let's button up our suits and do accounting and stuff. Yes. And then so then I think you see stuff like Near Dark and The Lost Boys, and you start getting this brooding masculinity this beefiness, this stoicism. And then you move even further, like from Dust Hold On and Blade, and you start getting this glam rock yeah. masculinity. Even though they were trying not to be too culturally analytical, you really couldn't deny the fact that there was a major bloodborne yes, illness I mean, this happening. all happening with the backdrop of AIDS. And it's like, mm-hmm. so the concept of masculinity is being threatened via a bloodborne illness. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these vampire pieces of media are obliquely confronting it. They're not really proposing how to handle it in any specific way. They're just like, well, thank God you can be a vampire and still manly as fuck. I don't even know what the benefit is of dancing circles around. Like, is it gay or is it homosocial sometimes? Like, but I do think specifically Interview with the Vampire and The Lost Boys are really homosocial movies. Like, you see covens or even like tribunals in vampire societies mm-hmm. where there are a bunch of men making decisions together. Which is interesting because you also have this fascination with vampire queens too. Yeah. Like a bee type society like a or like a black widow type of situation. Like an insect-like mm-hmm. element to it. But even that is a sort of female figurehead and a retinue of yeah. men, I think. Yes. Which is, yeah. you see that dynamic in Interview with the Vampire as well. I think like that's why Lestat hates this girl child so much. Oh my gosh, what you said about the colony or like the insect yes yeah it's like you can't kill a roach there's something that's coming to mind for me is the myth of the vampires has so many utilities it it addresses so many anxieties at once and one of them that's coming to mind for the 80s is like obviously there's this anxiety about satanic panic and the general gen x anxiety of aging but very specifically the anxiety about entering into the yuppie mainstream and this idea of giving up your soul or selling your soul or becoming a zombie is kind of akin to becoming a vampire, like signing up to be dead, essentially. Oh my gosh, this is making me think about like how often music is incorporated into vampire movies. Like from Dust Hold On, they're in this biker bar where there are all these live bands playing. In the late 70s and 80s and into the 90s, like that is truly the development of the music industry as far as like getting signed to a label and then the label owning you like you're selling out like you're making it yeah. big this is like pop stars and rock stars were really like becoming a thing and so it is like selling your sort soul. of like mm-hmm. vampire leech i think mythos as well like they're sucking life out of these bands they're predatory so i think that's one thing that i'm interested in is like where is the convergence between satanic panic and the backdrop of the AIDS epidemic and, you know, putting on this front of super strong dudes and rock and roll and leather and that sort of thing. I think it's important to note that in the 70s and 80s, like, the archetypal gay man that we think of right. looked a lot different. Like, mm-hmm. it was this hyper-masculine almost fascist looking figure like a tom of finland yeah. cop right authority big figure big mustache big muscles 
glam rock and music was kind of a meeting place for these weird metrosexual vibes of like, I don't know how to explain it necessarily. Masculine and feminine were trading a lot of motifs and traits and, like, and homosexuality like, was complicating um, that. I don't know if this is the right time period, but David, um, David Bowie, David Bowie. Yeah. Right? Very vampiric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think in the eighties, America was thinking a lot about itself as an adult And so these anxieties about what are we going to look like in the future? What is our immortal essence came up a lot. And that obviously ties so much into vampires of like Mm -hmm. living long enough to see all the consequences of your actions and your ancestors' actions. Oh, so true. Yeah, I feel like people were trying to get other people to acknowledge that in the 80s. And the mainstream culture just was not acknowledging that like, oh, the world might be starting to burn. Right, because I feel like we get a lot of climate activism and ethnic studies departments being established, like, right around this time. With the vampire as a creature becoming increasingly Americanized, we see a transformation of the racial anxieties. So, like, obviously there is the dimension of America hates Eastern Europe. <laughs> and right? So we, I mean, yeah, we see Cold that Cold War through. is also, like, a huge thing at the exactly. same time. But we also see a lot of um, anxieties about America's slavery sublimated into these pieces of vampire media like in interview with the vampire vampire. i mean that's very overt he owns a plantation yeah he owns slaves yeah Yeah. yeah. and and he is drinking the slave's blood yeah there's like the whole first quarter of the movie that when i was watching it i was like i could do without this there's also a land issue there too because doesn't it get burnt down to collect some money okay Tying together some of what we're talking about, I think that's another departure that we're seeing from the older vampires to this kind of in-between era that we're exploring. Because I guess the big question we were posing earlier is, how do you get from Dracula to Twilight and the post-Twilight world that we live in currently? And then this bridge point is essential where we're going from the vampire as a way to explore Eastern European xenophobia that Western Europeans were perpetuating as well as some of like the classic anti-Semitism, Orientalism, etc., with this Victorian backdrop and Victorian aesthetic, and then kind of moving that into 70s and 80s aesthetics in America and adopting it. Because we have to, like I think, Americanize whatever exports we have. It is very interesting how the American South, and specifically Louisiana, becomes a hotbed for kind of doing this revitalization. I wonder what it is about that specific setting that encourages thinking about Southern Gothic stuff. Yeah. You said, like, Southern Gothic. Right. And Louisiana is spooky Spooky. as hell. Yeah. They have all of the exports of France and then placed on top of this sort of abject biosphere of the swamp. Swamps are my most (laughs) fearful biome because... You can't see through the water. And the water's still, too. I feel like that's I also... I hate still water. There's so many poisonous, so many venomous things that Gators. live in the swamp. And it's very primordial. Maybe yeah. that's what they're seeking, yeah. is a place in the country so new that feels ancient enough to hold all this anxiety. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the older places mm-hmm. in the United States from its colonial start. And also, you can't bury anything. Right, the above-ground cemeteries. So all the history and all the death and all of the lineage is, like, still on the same plane as you when you're there. Kind of an inversion of French catacombs in that way. Yeah. Right? Like, it's all above the surface and you're forced to reckon with it. 
that's what makes it so interesting with the way vampirism in America gets tied up with Confederacy and the South is trying to find a way to, I guess, make a romantic capital R spectacle out of vampires, which isn't really attempted to the same degree with older vampire stories. It's really, really interesting how consistent of a theme this becomes. Now that we've started talking about it, like, why is it that a lot of this, like, American vampire fascination is focused on strong, beefy men and, like, strong, beefy men doing strong, beefy things? I mean, Um, so much of antebellum imagery is, too. It's just Mm -hmm. like that. So, I mean, it lends to it really well. A man in uniform doing something that's tough, but, like... You know, also he may not agree with it, yeah. and also sophisticated. He's carrying on the tradition, which is to be strong and endure. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's important to have these antebellum images after war. I've been right. thinking so much about sanitization recently. I'm sure no one could have predicted that we would bring up Israel and Palestine in this fucking <laughs> episode of all things. Um, sanitization, in particular, like looking at a process as it is happening right now. And then watching the manufacturing of how we will look at it in the future, Mm. looking at this present moment. And I have to credit this really excellent video essay on YouTube that looks at like why so many vampire confederacy stories are being told. I'll definitely put it in the episode notes and you guys should listen to it. But there is this really, really fascinating look at the way the confederacy gets sanitized in this antebellum period because everyone feels this urge to go back and create a states rights narrative but if you're looking at primary texts from that era um the speeches are very explicit about you know the north is mad that we like slavery and we want slavery so we have to fight this war and we have to secede so that we can continue to have slavery and then this gets like watered down and turned into a whole thing about family lines and good old southern gentleman values and this lost cause of the confederacy that myth making is so productive that you get to the point where you're able to have people construct romantic images of confederate soldiers even though they're literally just signing on to defend slavery it's really fascinating you can have a full conversation a full representation of a vampire for example who was linked to the confederacy and never ever mention slavery we have this kind of hodgepodge of pieces of media um lost boys near dark blade from dusk till dawn and then Post the millennium changeover, we see a new iteration of vampires. And Molly, I know you you watched a few things if you want to talk about them. Yeah, so after I watched Interview with the Vampire, I wanted to watch Queen of the Damned, which is a movie from 2002, also based on a book by Anne Rice, and it is a continuation of the character of Lestat from Interview with the Vampire. The movie opens like... (laughs) really annoyingly by Lestat being awakened from centuries of sleep by the sound of new metal. (laughs) (laughs) As I wake up every day. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, the movie is like, it's fusing kind of like that glam rock with the new metal aesthetic of the early 2000s. There's a ton of original music written for the movie, which is another reason why I wanted to watch this. Like it has a continuation of vampires that rock. The dudes from Korn wrote a lot of that original music. Down with the Sickness is beautifully featured. I love this return to the idea of music specifically being important to vampires. And I think this is another development within the vampire myth that we see during this period. Like we talked about with music becoming more and more important is that vampires respond really powerfully to culture, which Mm -hmm. is the lifeblood 
of mm. humans, right? Yeah, no, I was thinking about that when I was watching it. Like, why does vampirism fit in so well to, like, the template of early 2000s alt-rock? Um, like, the piercings, like, the emo, the goth, all these different kinds of hardcore inflections. Also, then why do vampires fit so well into so many different kinds of aesthetics? I, was the natural continuation of that question. Like, you can think of any core, so to speak, like any subgenre, yeah. and, and make a vampire out of it and have it be successful, I think. Yeah, why do you think that is? It's related to what you were saying, that vampires respond so well to, quote-unquote, the lifeblood of a time and place. Which they kind of have to, right? Like, within the mythology, they are immortal, so yeah. they do have to be able to move quite deftly from cultural period to cultural period. Perhaps we could compare them to, say, zombies, which I think are yeah. kind of the opposite of vampires now, ironically, in that they can happen to any culture, any time and place, and they'll pretty much kind of always have the same effect. Like, there's no cultural significance to the zombie as a creature, that's part of the way that all of these iterations of vampires, you see that continuous thing of adopting your fake ancestor's name and pretending to be a new person in each generation when it's really just you all along, um, really speaks for the fact that they are in a way a creature of the future, yeah. even though they might be stuck in that body that they had in their quote unquote present moment. So like the point of this movie of Queen of the Damned is that Lestat is this famous rock star, he's very secretive, he has a cult following, and there is this coup planned to kill him on stage at one of his performances. Um, it's some kind of power struggle within, like... There is uh, a complication to this coup because Lestat has reawakened the Queen of the Damned, known as Akasha, played by Aaliyah. I think she was 22. She filmed this, and after she wrapped uh, all filming all of her parts was when she died wow. and so the movie came out posthumously and is dedicated to her and then mm. it flopped and then it flopped. did it flop yeah it was i think it only made like 10 million more than it cost i see that it has um a rotten rating on rotten tomatoes oh my it was a critical failure yeah um well, this is an excellent movie to kind of mark the separation between these two periods we'll be talking about because it, it seems to me like it is almost a yearning for the glam stardom of the 80s mm -hmm. right? with an acknowledgement that like post 9-11, you yeah. can't have the There's... same sort of hyper-masculine but still questionably homosexual men of the yesteryear. Right. Yeah. yeah. The nostalgia is very, very interesting with vampires, I think. Like, just how the past coming into the future necessarily needs a disguise, I think, so that they can hide among the humans. So you can't really have this like open celebration of the past and roots for the vampires themselves because it becomes a question of safety and threat. finally gotten to the part that I was the most excited about, which is the Twilight and post-Twilight world, aka newer vampires, 
with Queen of the Damned really, you know, marking this turning point, and then Twilight really, really changing pretty much everything that we knew about representations of vampires. Credit goes to, of course, Edward D. Cullen, sparkly legend. Very, I think, in a lot of reviews and stuff, they describe him as, like, elfin. I really don't find him... He's not Which I don't find him elfin. I think he's just, like, pale and beautiful, but this must have been, like, a relic of Lord of the Rings core. True. I think that might be where it's coming from. To me feels like walking into old school Abercrombie. Yeah. Like when you would walk in and it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. It's and his hair was his so hair. always like super, super aggressively ruffled. In one interview he was mentioning that like they had him wear a wire in his collar so they could ruffle it appropriately yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Which is to say that I'm more interested in what Twilight spawned, right? Because it has a lot of suns. If we have Twilight as the beginning domino, and then we kind of go into like whatever the end domino could be, there are so many directions. But Twilight, the book, comes out in 2005. That popularity is relatively instant um, and kind of puts vampires back on the map post Anne Rice, I would say. I feel like that was the last time that we really have vampires on the map in America, as far as literature goes. And then we have My Immortal, which is the infamous Harry Potter fanfic, Featuring Ebony, Ebony Darkness, Darkness, Dementia, Raven, yeah. Wait. Which sometimes <laughs> was spelled Enneby. Enneby, yes, <laughs> which I love. Enneby. <laughs> and Darkness is dark, <laughs> apostrophe Ness. Yeah. Dementia was part of the No, deadass yeah. Dementia. She was callback to our previous episode. Right. I mean, I mean, a crazy bitch? Yeah. She was. She was quite the BPD girly. Yeah. Um, Proto-BPD girly, really. Did she end up with Draco? Didn't we? Didn't she, Draco turn into a fucking vampire? He did, he did. Okay, yeah. he would, though. He, he really would. would. He was also very vampire core. He had yeah. that In the way that hair. Edward Cullen was, right? <laughs> Him and his dad. Dude. Would. I, I hate to say it. What? <laughs> They're Nazis. <laughs> well, it's... Okay, it's Harry Potter. It's Harry Potter, Everyone's bro. a Everyone's Nazi. Everyone's a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter himself is a little Nazi trust fun boy. Lucius. <laughs> Lucius. So to to return to Twilight, <laughs> I feel like the reason one of the main reasons it was so pivotal in the development of the vampire mythos was that it is the Christian reimagining of nineties grunge sensibilities. Like it's a it's Ooh. a referential piece of media. It really is. Yeah. I mean I it's the first time I remember hearing the word irrevocable. Because it was, Same. Is that right? The, <laughs> right? In the opening passage, right? Yes. It is in the opening passage, and it's also on the back of the book, uh-huh. on the paper. Right? Irrevocably in love with him? Yes. Yes. That yes. doesn't even make sense when I think about right. it. Right. But it was so iconic in that moment. <laughs> so I guess, like, what I what I find so fascinating about this is, at the same time that it was getting really popular, there was all of this hate where people are like, this is so poorly written, Bella Swan's such a fucking loser, and she is this and she's that, and, like, I don't understand why everybody cares about Edward it or Jacob. It was so viciously political yes like everyone had something to hate about it not even to get into the entire like harry potter versus twilight yeah thing nobody wins in that scenario and nobody wins in that scenario i mean twilight's winning a little bit i can't even lie i feel like in retrospect harry potter i mean jk rowling really shot herself in the foot with all that no uh, may she rot. But what I find so fascinating about this is reimagining vampires as 
ahistorical and yet so historical. Like the Cullen family is I mean, an assemblage of vampires. <laughs> it is a from, ridiculous amalgam. Right. Yeah. It's from all these different random ass fucking time it's periods. Almost like a harem. It is very harem. Like there's so many things about Twilight that are seeded with fan fiction tropes that later on are able to come out either in fan fiction or fan fiction inspired yeah. novels. Um, and so directly you have, you know, the shitty ass My Immortal fanfic, right? But you also have other sons of Twilight, such as fucking Fifty Shades of Grey. Like we directly have Fifty Shades of Grey from Twilight, which is so interesting to think about because Twilight is a repressive Christian romance novel, essentially. And Fifty Shades is a freaking BDSM attempt yeah, I was going to say, although I would argue that it, that's for another episode. It is quite repressed as well, but it's it cracks me up that that is what came from that. And then both of them to such massive critical acclaim and success, you know, spawned these, like, movie series, and we're losing the plot, right? Like, we're eventually losing the plot of, is this even about vampires? Are the vampires even doing the vampire shit? And I would say that's more in the teeny bopper side of vampire things, like Twilight and such. I would say that if the 80s and 90s vampire media was concerned about what is masculinity, what does the modern man look like, a lot of the post-Twilight and Twilight included media are concerned with, well, what does a woman look like? Because I think this is Mm. a a point in time where we're really starting to revisit this idea of, like, are women victims? Mm. And there's just an increasing (laughs) discourse about that. And the answer is yes, all women are victims. (laughs) But I think, well, to yeah, your like, point, it's maybe less about a vampire, and it's maybe more about the lady who gets bitten. It really is. Yeah. Like He becomes an accessory, almost, in Twilight. Like It's more about Bella's fascination with the vampires and their family, and becoming a vampire herself, but not necessarily the qualms about vampires. Like, you know, the fact that Edward is this quote-unquote vegetarian vampire, which is such a hilarious concept given the origins of vampires that we've traced and kind of how the representations have been up until this point. Like, yes, of course they drink human blood. They are predators of humans. Um, and now we're constructing, like, good vampires and bad vampires, and the good vampires are suppressing their true nature and feeding on, like, animals or, you know, hitting up blood banks for their blood. And I mean, there is something about that that is so like meta and camp, I think. When this originally began as like a true monster spectacle, like I think we're collapsing the boundary between monster and human to encourage the romance plots in a lot of ways, because these are YA novels. Well, I I was going to say the contemporary heterosexual plot is like, the man is a monster. That's just kind of a given. And I think that these pieces of media really reflect that, where it's like, well, let's not linger too much on, like, the fact that man is a monster and woman is a victim. Let's be meta by being more nuanced about, like, well, what kind of monster is he? And then it's like, I think that speaks to the fact that in Twilight, the vampire wasn't even enough as a monster. Like, exactly. they had to add in other things. Yeah, yeah, like, they had to add in werewolves, and then they had to add in the Volturi and, like, yeah. all this other shit, where it's like, is it not enough that this dude's family feeds on blued apparently not (laughs) and it's not it's not like i really like what you said about what questions these different genres or eras of of vampire culture are asking Mm -hmm. because so much of twilight is about how not like other girls bella is like she is so she has such a perfect and like 
you know, endless depth of feeling. Like she feels so deeply that she falls into this months long depression and mm-hmm. ends up, you know, becoming like an adrenaline junkie because she just can never reach the high. I forgot that she goes like cliff jumping. Yeah. She goes like cliff jumping and, and that's on breaks the motorcycle. Yeah, she's like, she's like she was suicide gets, baiting. He yeah. Was, yeah, he was like concerned that she would k-word herself. Yeah, well then she would have been on Discord. I mean, yeah. not to mention the converse with the prom dress, the prom dress, the sweater paws. Yeah, she never wants to eat anything. She drives that truck. Like she drives that truck. She's so sure. different. And then the vampires are also so different. Not just in the context of like the fork social culture, but in the context of other vampires. Like they're this freakish little family where they're very incestuous because they're all a found family, also in romantic relationships that are like paired off together. It's crazy that the people of Forks thought that was like cool or whatever too. Like you said, Twilight has this interesting selection, a banquet of vampires, if you will. And among them is Jasper, who is such a freak. Honestly. I kind of loved him, I no, can't lie. I did too. He was also quite not like other boys. He, yeah, he he was definitely shell-shocked. I think it was very convenient that he said so little, given the fact that his history is incredibly questionable, because he was a Confederate soldier, and it's like, I don't know if Stephanie Meyer ever really explores that. In the video essay, there is, like, a deep dive into the creation of the character and what she was thinking, and she was, like, actively wanting to make him a Confederate soldier. Like, she was searching Confederate name registries to find the name Jasper. Okay, so, so very, she was thinking about yeah. it. It, it was, was a, not just a throwaway. Right, right. It was a very intentional choice. And then that begs the question, like, you know, why are we doing all of this confederacy sprinkling in? Because Jasper is not the only example. Yeah. He is probably temporally speaking the first example. Because after this, we get the Salvatore brothers and the Vampire Diaries. More Wait, st- they were also confederates? Yes! Both of them? Most notably Damon. I think um, the younger one was not old enough to go to war or some shit like that. I should know this because I read the books, which are way different. So fucking different. They were Italian. Yeah. In the books. Salvatore. So isn't that crazy? Is the books were written in the 90s, but then for the TV adaptation, out of nowhere, like I was talking about earlier, they pick up this setting and make it all confederate and then true blood which is a tv show what are they hubbo doing to the italian people right (laughs) it makes you really aghast because then in true blood there's also like the confederate vampire group which i believe what's his name bill so true blood came out in 2008 like it it was based on books and i i'm not really sure in relation to Twilight, like, when those came out. But True Blood is very different from Twilight. The main character, Sookie, she calls herself a perfect size 8. Was I talking to one of you about this? I was talking to Terry about this. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Terry. For real. Shout out, Terry! Two-thirds of the pod's hairstylist? Hairdresser? Yeah. What is the PC term? I think... Hair person. (laughs) Terry, if you're listening to this which you will be because you love us I really want you to cut my hair I just don't live in this town so I'll get on that Terry pointed out to me that in the books Soki refers herself repeatedly as a perfect size 8 which in the midst of like all of the shifting beauty standards of the 2000s landscape is very interesting but you know in comparison to Bella specifically is really fascinating because Soki's like this southern kind of cheeky bratty sassy blonde girl she's a waitress and she becomes embroiled with this 
brooding vampire guy who was a Confederate soldier. And over the course of the series, they like go back and revise his history over and over and over again, trying to turn him into a good Confederate soldier, which they would never really succeed. But in the first... Cope. They do this in every piece of vampire media that has Confederates. Yeah. In the first season, there's this really bizarre plot point where... As he's assimilating into the town that he's like ancestrally a part of, he's back on the homestead of his grandfather. And part of the way he endears himself to the community is he speaks at what is basically like a Daughters of the Confederacy meeting. And he talks about the war. And there's this scene where he's kind of recalling what the war was like and how kind of disgusting the people he fought alongside were and he sees the faces of their descendants in the crowd their children and grandchildren and realizes that he has to change the story and make it sound better oh and it's just like fascinating that the show does that and then it doesn't really elaborate on that that's so interesting to show the conscious sanitization that's happening yeah because again like this is something that i'm really really interested in because in the vampire diaries they only really do this because Elena, the main character, also skinny brunette legend that every man in the show is obsessed with, a la Twilight, she and Damon end up becoming more of like the key couple in the show towards that. The issue is, in the very first season, they make Damon this like unlikable rat asshole. So then they have to retcon a ton of stuff so that by the end you feel more in favor of their relationship. And one of the things that they do is try to do the Confederate revisionism and be like, well, Damon didn't actually believe in the cause. He was just doing this because he had mommy issues and daddy issues and wanted his family to be proud of him. This is interesting. I think I'm perhaps tracking the origins of vampires in like a sort of east versus western european sense in a white supremacist sense yeah being like a a tool of exerting white supremacy upon upon a people it's had this trajectory where now it is actually in these works of fiction a manifestation of white guilt with retconning these confederate narratives or sort of like white apologism right or yeah. I, I don't even know if I would use guilt or apologism because I don't think a lot of these decisions are conscious in that they're like, we want to make a commentary on confederacy. No. I think it's more a sense of like, because we live in a world where the confederacy has turned into something that was like, they were fighting for states' rights and not necessarily slavery and stuff, that can become a sort of romantic Gone with the Wind-esque situation. Mm. And they can borrow kind of those tragic elements. Because now vampires are just like sexy, brooding guys. I'm going to be a centrist oh. and agree with both of you. Because <laughs> Boo. I, I do think that there's an element of guilt. Like I think, especially in True Blood, you see that. I would also say like American vampire media is always going to run into this problem. If you have a character that is a certain age, they're going to have lived through slavery. Atrocity, yeah. yeah through yeah. atrocity, through slavery specifically. And I think a lot of these pieces of media were like, well, then let's make them Confederate so we can have it. This is our morally gray character. Yeah. And it's just, it is such a fascinating confluence of like romance novel, white woman brain. I and think it, it is a shortcut to complexity for them. I agree. This is reminding me of a story that I've told so many times, and I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing this, but I had a boss this woman who I will not name 
she told me once that she had gone to a past life conference. And in the past life conference, they had her do a guided meditation in which she went into this house. And this house was structurally her life. It was a symbol for her life. And she went into the basement where her past lives lay. And in the basement, she found a closet and she opened it up and it was a Confederate uniform. And she had a flashback (laughs) to her previous life in which she was a gay Confederate soldier. I think she tried to spin it as like she was kicked out for being gay. So So ergo, she had to like be in the war. I don't really remember the details. Um, But that story always makes me think of this specific type of white american woman it's like suffering olympics okay right the vampire becomes a way to explore ways of suffering obviously we have this extremely morally ethically questionable exploration of like race dynamics via the vampire and then we also start to see it like specifically beauty standards which molly i know you had some things that you wanted to discuss with that yeah totally i mean the number one thing that i have been thinking about in consuming all of this vampire media is that there are no fat vampires. Yeah. There's one fat vampire in True Blood. And I love that for And True he's Blood. gay. And, <laughs> and he's gay? Hate crimed and murdered. Oh! oh he okay. was actually well, awesome. So, R.I.P. that guy. I so, mean, most of the vampires we see are really, really skinny white people. They're heroin chic. Exactly. Exactly. And so, like, I was started thinking about this when I was watching Queen of the Damned because part of that early 2000s aesthetic is extremely low-cut jeans Jeans. with these thick belts Mm -hmm. that really accentuate, you know, like the V-lines and the six-pack. Something about the way that Aaliyah moves in that movie really articulates, like, all of her ligaments and you can see her bones and, like, skinniness is is presented as something that is mythic and alluring and covetable and sensuous. And so I wondered, like, why are vampires so skinny? Thinking about this, like, they consume one thing and they really don't have a lot of needs outside of consuming that one thing. So they have to find other ways to enrich their lives that aren't the ways that we get creative with our basic survival, like cooking a delicious meal, finding different ways to relax or sleep or anything like that. So they're always moving, they're always active, and they're only consuming one thing. Like, it's reminding me, like, of girlies who are like, well, like, I'm so manically dedicated to my own craft that I only had you know, my, my blood latte today and a cigarette and that's it. Yeah. Right. And I stayed up all night. Stay yeah. And night, I stayed up all night. And I walk everywhere and, you know, I would never take the elevator. I only take the stairs. Yeah. yeah it is like a very unhealthy way to behave. Yeah. I think that's a really salient point because in the eighties it was like so many beauty standards were about being physically fit and healthy and not sickly. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that the vampires then were like, somehow really fit like yeah um they were just doing chest presses all the time yeah oh. but it felt like a return to form exactly it reminded me of what you said towards the beginning of the episode when you were describing early vampires they're very gaunt they are manifesting from an anxiety about death and dying and sickness and infection it is a privilege to be close to death without dying there is power in staving off what is coming for us all. And it reminded me of something that I believe Lestat says in Interview with a Vampire, which is, I'm flesh and blood, but not human. So then I got to thinking, 
you are embodying these human traits like flesh and blood. You know, those are the two things people talk about when they talk about what makes up man, so to speak, but not human. So they're in this really weird liminal space between monstrosity and humanity. And I think in other depictions that we've talked about tonight, like vampires are very monstrous. There's something that'll get you. There's something that is scary to encounter in the dark. And in other depictions, especially as we get more contemporaneous, they become something that you'd like to encounter in the dark. You'd like to meet around some dark corner and be pulled into their lair and like have this illicit, mysterious sensuous or sexual experience yeah and there's a desirability to it i feel like which there is a a faint thread of that right in carmilla for sure but also in dracula as well like there is this sexual mystique about these scary creatures but i definitely see what you mean where we get to the point where it is almost desirable that like i think before it was like the prey desires the predator and now we've gotten to the point where it's like the prey desires to become one of the predators that becomes one of bella's fascinations it's like i want to be a vampire i want to be i want to experience this and know this as well i will never forget how she crosses her eyes in the movie when he starts sucking out of her wrist. Oh my god, yeah. that scared me so much. As a kid. I know. It's really. I intense. mean, all of the feeding ritual stuff, yeah. like the ecstasy of it, mm-hmm. and like I remember even now, like I feel like I consume so much vampire media, but I really don't like watching the feeding scenes because, like, yeah. the eroticism of it is so visceral that it's like i have a hard time separating it from myself when you said it the ecstasy of it like yes there's a pleasurable ecstasy to it but i think there's also this condition of being ecstatic like if you're in that ecstasy of saint Teresa type yeah how religious of it Mm -hmm. exactly exactly and it plays into the mania that we're talking about right like there's like this manic element to the vampires of being awake acquiring skills making use of your time while you're on earth I mean, to our detriment as people, as communities, as a culture, like, skinniness is highly romanticized and highly idealized. And so when we consider thinness to be culturally valuable, then are vampires actually monsters? I think that they're a fantasy, not a power fantasy. I kept having this thought earlier of... A vampire being like, oh no, I couldn't, like, I'm so full. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not really gluttonous, but they're insatiable. But- they're starving, they're always hungry. And so, like, there is a fantasy about being able to feed endlessly that I think fits into their skinniness. And this comes up, though, in Only Lovers Left Alive, the 2013 film directed by Jim Jarmusch that we all watched together. I think gluttony and restricting is a theme in that movie yeah um where they have eve and adam who are the two married vampires and it's they're the lovers that are left alive and they interact with eve's quote-unquote sister ava and i remember one thing that adam is so irritated with her about is not just her being like a poor house guest and like you know fucking around in his house and drinking his blood and that sort of thing his blood stash i will say but specifically like this sense of restriction. They take- Sorry, when you said blood stash, I was just thinking of like a milk mustache. But like- <laughs> That's cute. He and Eve take these dainty little gulps. They even pour up in these tiny little crystal glasses that seem like they hold Shots two worth. ounces. Yeah. And um, Ava, in one scene, has drained a human and has this literal like blood stash around her fucking yeah. face like a white person after eating spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> The Italians. <laughs> the Italians. 
and I just I was thinking about that of yeah. like you know there's this aesthetic in the whole movie that like Adam and Eve are so skinny and they're so sexy and wan and stuff and you don't really see them eat like they take dainty little sips of blood here and there but they're not really indulging in anything other than really like their love for each other and their pet fascinations which for Eve are her books and for Adam is his um hoarding essentially his music his music, his music yeah. and also the methods by which people have archived yeah. or recorded their art. I would say that there's some extremely suspicious ideas of gluttony and all that within this movie, but more than anything, even Adam are collectors of culture, they're walking archives of the human race. Mm-hmm. And a major part of culture is the the ability to restrain, because when you restrain you define. And so I think that's yeah. kind of part of or refine. Yeah, mm. refine. That's part of why they aren't going crazy and, and drinking They're like an animal. They're incredibly chic, right? I yeah. mean, I remember one thing we kept noticing about Ava was, like, her gauche outfits and her gauche behavior. And she's just not... All her polka dots. Her fuck-ass polka dots. I liked like, her outfits, but I understand what you're saying. Right, but I mean, in comparison to these really slim-cut suede matching outfits oh that my God. Adam and Eve have on, like... She is gauche in comparison. Yeah. Adam, for reference for viewers, because I feel like you, you should watch this movie for the visuals alone, at the mm-hmm. very least. But, like, Adam is played by Tom Hiddleston. He has a bird's nest of black hair, and he's always wearing black leather. And Eve is played by Tilda Swinton, and she has... She has the same hair from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Eve is wearing suede yeah. and white leather, and, you know, it's very, like, haha, like how very caveman of them that they're wearing animal skin and they have this like musty hair but and yeah they're so, always wearing sunglasses but it's working and they're, they're oh yes they both have like they both have these amazing gloves that they wear eve's white adam's black they have that feature where there's a cutout around the knuckles so they can easily bend they're just like the sexiest gloves and they wear them when they go in public when they are in private or in intimate settings they remove the gloves and so this got me thinking as i had been about the idea of touch in vampire culture i say vampire culture (laughs) i mean really yeah i mean we've done a deep dive into their culture we're experts (laughs) <laughs> turn me now honestly we're vampire anthropologists <laughs> yeah i'm sticking on my neck yeah earlier when you were reading that passage from carmilla that described the way that the strange companion touches the protagonist's hand and through that touch she is able to both feel more into her own body and observe the physical movements and reactions of this creature I remember reading Twilight, there are all these descriptions of how, like, hard and smooth and marble-like. Marble-like. And cold to the touch the vampire's skin is. I became obsessed with imagining his dick, I will say. Me too! Yeah, Yeah. he's bricked up constantly. Literally. (laughs) Constantly bricked up! Yeah. That's the title of the episode. That <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to know what it's about. Engorged. <laughs> episode five. So then that really like made me zero in on the idea of the gloves and perhaps what symbolism might be behind them. And I was reminded of this article that I read in grad school about the way that gloves are depicted, especially in 19th century French painting. Ooh. And... 
So I did a bit of reading. Since I graduated, the author of that article has published an entire book. Queen! Um, her name is Anne Green, and the title of the book is Gloves and Intimate History. And so I was reading really specifically from this chapter five, Place This Glove Near Thy Heart, Gloves and Loves. And she's sort of going through all these different examples um, in history, art history, and history more broadly, about how gloves have like this courtly history and the way that you can communicate different relationship statuses through the use or movement of gloves or through like gift giving, gloves being the gift. The most salient point I think that Green makes here is that uh, gloves belong in pairs. And so the fact that throw up. the fact that Adam and Eve both have their own gloves that they wear, you know, they live on different sides of the of the globe most of the time. They have this doubled, interconnected thing that they wear on their hands, which interface with the world. That's so beautiful. Well, they reference that when they're talking about, pretentiously, Einstein's spooky action from a distance yeah. about two particles that even when separated, they interact with each other. And so on a more crude level... The glove is a condom in in this case, yes. or, but like rather, well, it's also it's, in the Anne Green that I'm reading over Molly's shoulder. You know, the gloves themselves offer a sensual embrace, the pleasure of putting on a pair of perfect fitting gloves, sheathing one's hands in gorgeously supple leather, yeah. and slowly fitting them over one's fingers. There's this resignation that Adam and Eve have. And they express it throughout the film of like, they're above violence. They've had enough time to reckon with the status of being a vampire, which is like to kill people. And they found ways around that, like through blood banks and, you know, kind of convenient plot devices. What makes them different from other couples we've talked about in this episode and kind of returning to Lestat and Louis is like, they're both vampires. And so in a way they can be safe together because they're not going to prey on each other. They mm -hmm. have this healthy, loving relationship. And so they wear their gloves when they're interfacing with the world because they are on some level kind of nervous about taking advantage of the human world. They see it as this very precarious, like barely surviving thing. But when they're together, like they take their gloves off. There's multiple scenes where they're just like naked and cuddling and becoming yeah. one person. And they kind of look like a hand with their literally, limbs Literally, if you watch yeah. this movie for nothing else, literally just the, the intimate and intricate ways they touch each other. I mean, that alone, like, you could watch the movie for. I um, cried. I literally, like, actually audibly, gutterly wept. Yeah. There's, I was just like, oh, is she okay? There's this scene where Adam is being suicidal. The brooding vampire is made doubly ironic in his character because he's, like, actively seeking to kill himself throughout mm -hmm. the first half of the film. And Eve delivers this really beautiful, very Tilda Swinton monologue of, like, you've been alive for so long and you don't get it. Mm -hmm. And she puts on this, like, Motown record, and they dance together. And it's just, like, the way that Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton have such good chemistry. It's, it's literally, like, it's electric isn't the right word. It's just, like, so warm. It's simmering. It's simmering. like a, I don't know, I felt very, like, cardiovascular. I felt, yeah. I felt held by their... Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna yeah. think about it. Don't think about it too far. <laughs> you were their third yes. in that moment. I was their third. Um, but there's, I mean, there's something so self-reflexive about a glove, like so self-contained where you with your fingertips are feeling the interior of the glove and 
also you're feeling the glove and the glove is feeling you and you're feeling things through, through the, glove. the glove. What a perfect tool for a vampire. Mm-hmm. Right? To protect yourself too. Like if in this universe their skin is cold to the touch, then it impedes a sort of accidental brush of the hand that would cause suspicion. Or, like, I mean, there's such a big emphasis on after the transformation into a vampire, like, the baby vampires have such sharp senses all of a sudden. That also makes me think of, like, barriers, right? Like, having that glove on, preventing you from having the tactile stimulation of literally everything that exists around you. Yeah, it's like the sunglasses. But I really also like the idea of gloves. They mirror, but they can't be placed directly over each other in the same plane. There's a word for that. I know. I should know it. Is it chiral? Yeah. Yeah, They're chiral. chiral. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're enantiomers. Yeah. And I I really think that's neat. I think in a way, like, all of these myths that we make about monsters are a way to explore the human condition, because that's what humans love to do, obviously. But we construct something that is chiral to ourself. It is mirrored, but it's not something that we could directly absorb into our own experience. Ultimately, to understand what it's like to be a vampire, you have to become one in all of these narratives. So there is the mirror in between these two states of experience. And you have to traverse that to be able to get there. Only Lovers Left Alive does that really beautifully. I think a really good example of chirality in there is not even any of the main characters, but there's the character uh, Christopher Marlowe and his student, Bilal. And I think they're a great example of chirality. Because Bilal is so reverently connected to Christopher Marlowe, and Christopher Marlowe is also such a strong believer in his talent. And the bit there is that Christopher Marlowe has been alive for so long, he's such a prolific writer, and all of these humans that have gotten credit for excellent works of literature have actually been him. Some of them. Some of them. There's a recurring theme where vampires periodically infuse a dose of human culture back into itself. So back to the Dracula infusion in a way. So he does that, but then, you know, they're grieving and they're like, oh, the world without your words, how could we possibly go on? And he reassures the other vampires, Adam and Eve, he's like, it's okay, like, Bilal will be there as well. And there's so many images in this movie that are so painting-like, and the one that I really remember well is the one where Christopher Marlowe is passing away and on one side is like Adam and Eve collapsed into each other and then collapsed onto him in their grief and on the other side is like Bilal collapsed by himself but a mirror image of that grief and yet the two are never going to be the same but they do mirror each other perfectly. One of the reasons Only Lovers Left Alive is able to accomplish this like tender and I think refined depiction of love and immortality and human culture is because it has a very narrow window. It focuses so specifically on European and a little bit of like American, but mostly like white culture is this amalgam. Adam and Eve and Christopher Marlowe are the vampires we see in this movie. And all three of them are, oh wait, no, and Ava. So all four of them are white and the names speak for themselves yeah Mm -hmm. like literally a return to the christian form instead of catholicism defeating the vampire it defines them right with adam and eve and like we mentioned before they're all very interested in preserving and safeguarding human culture but very notably the names they're dropping are european and american half of the movie is set in detroit 
And I'm pretty sure we don't see a single black character. Yeah. But we see like or we hear about like black music, black mm-hmm. American music, and it just feels very consumptive. Consumptive. There's and- there's a part where Adam is taking Eve around Detroit and was like, Do you wanna go see the Motown Museum? Tilda Swinton says, I'm more of a Stax girl myself. And that coming from her, I'm like, I'm sorry, babe, but like, what? That that I would not have expected you to say that. (laughs) It felt felt kind of disingenuous. No, for sure. There's a lot of moments like that where they're kind of treating Detroit as this burial ground for black culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they contrast that with Morocco and Tangier specifically, which is where Eve lives and that's the second half of the film. And that's kind of where they go to recuperate from some trouble with the law, basically. And also to revitalize Adam to make him not want to kill himself. And it's just this very beat poet escape from Western society, like absorb this exotic culture. I mean, brings us back to yeah. full circle. Escaping the discomforts of America. So what else do you have left but to go back and try to make the East new again? By looking at it as something that you can consume now. Yeah. Yeah. I like we start with the old school Orientalism and end with the new school. New school Orientalism. Yeah. In a way, it is still kind of old school. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a tradition in the way that vampires are concerned with like drawing on these other rituals and traditions and pieces of culture. They kind of reenact these cultural pastimes of tourism Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating but yeah i think that's something important to note about the movie that like it's able to accomplish its tenderness because it's it's omitting things that would really complicate its narrative i feel like this is a movie that has really strong opinions about how to live well yeah and i think it has a really narrow definition of how to live well and i mean it's a movie by jim jarmusch who like for all the great art that he has made he's extremely fucking hipster (laughs) like he's who i think of when i think of all the gen x people in my life who want to put their flag into the ground of alternativeness and knowing what the avant-garde is and knowing what is good art there's a lot of fixation on the movie because these vampires are experiencing existential dread all the time like how do i fill my life it's with hobbies. It's with the Western canon. It's about with being a bit of a snob. Yeah, really. it's, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of snobbery for sure. And it made me think of like elitist artist circles, and especially like artist colonies, where I mean Detroit is treated as like this failed experimental ground that is now like a fossil of American industry. Which is crazy, because they didn't try to really explore the quote-unquote scene. No. Right? And there's, like, still there's culture more, happening there's in Detroit. There's lots to do yeah. in Detroit. I mean, Detroit has, like, one of the most important house music festivals right? happens in Detroit. I mean, it also made me think of, like, Taos, yeah. another artist colony in some rural part of the world. Like, obviously, Tangiers is Tangier is one of these... There's also a very specific sort of artist colony that that I encountered growing up. There's a neighborhood in my hometown that is two streets large. It takes up two streets. The girth? <laughs> the girth of the girth. <laughs> yeah, it's comprised of two streets. They're the only two brick streets in this neighborhood, and then it's surrounded by a bunch of impoverished houses. Oh, and that's wretched. 
Right. And so like you can only imagine how the property tax taxes are affected by these like big three and four story Victorian homes surrounded by these tiny bungalows that are in various states of disrepair. Many of the people in Northeast Kansas who align themselves with different literary circles, with different artistic circles, have bought houses here and live there. And so it in itself is this artist colony, not even to get into the learners, but I don't think I can do that at this point. Yeah, see, if you're listening, you know who I'm talking about. If you know, you know. We have a lot of controversial opinions that we will never voice. It's... It's just another example of how places can become colonized by people who think they know how to live well and live correctly and make art correctly. And that's not chill. Damn. Part two of you didn't think we would get to colonialism. We did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To round it out, with all of its flaws, I do have a deep love for that movie. I watched it. When did it, when did it come out? Like 2014? Or 2016. It came out, like, right after I graduated high school. Yeah. And I thrifted this fucking amazing leather jacket. Nice. Technically, I stole it. (laughs) (laughs) From the place with the boss that was a (laughs) former Confederate soldier in her past life. Gay. Um, But I stole that leather jacket, and I watched this movie, and I was just like, oh my god. I can't wait to be a vampire. Yes. <laughs> like it really reignited a lot of my Twilight fantasies of living life as though I were undead and mm-hmm. kind of becoming defamiliarized with human culture and like being excited to to learn about people who came before me. And so I have a soft spot for this movie. I have That's a soft spot awesome. for True Blood. Like I don't think you can have an American piece of vampire media without it being of course. I mean, you so embroiled in racism. You can't have <laughs> American a, media in general. Like, you can't yeah. have a non-American piece of media that's not embroiled in its own bullshit. So I think. true, Queen. <laughs> media is all about getting embroiled in your own bullshit. Yeah. Right? I just, I, I don't know. I mean, this is such a romantic movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I liked it. I liked it all. It was phenomenal. And we should cry to it. We're a romantic podcast. This is true. Another temporally old source for vampire myths is the chupacabra, actually. And then that is, like, in my head, so much more under the domain of cryptids. Because, like, who is writing, you know, sexy young girl ex-chupacabra? Are the, is, is the Scooby-Doo chupacabra the same episode as the Hex Girls, or am I conflating? I want to say those are different. I feel like they're different, too. So they because, all run together. Because then there's also, like, the one where they go to Velma's hometown and there's, like, the giant Thanksgiving thing. That, that was really witch, fucking good. The witch says, do my bidding, bird. You <laughs> know, the there's, some, there's some Louisiana shit in Scooby-Doo, too. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Scooby-Doo. 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 Oh my god, the chupacabra looks so goofy in this the guy. The chupacabra and Scooby is so cute. But Scooby-Doo... That's not what they look like. I've yeah. Seen Scooby-Doo <laughs> on Zombie Island. That movie scared me so Same. badly. Have I talked about this on the pod before? No, I don't think it. so, but you should talk about it now. Oh my god. Okay, so I watched like The Ring when I was very young. And, what the hell? Oh my god, I loved it. I thought it was great. I didn't, it didn't bother <laughs> me at all. I loved all the different symbols. Uh, but then I watched Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. 
and I was sleeping in my mother's bed for weeks. I also have a profound attachment to this movie. Oh, it's crazy. I also just have a profound attachment to Scooby-Doo, but, like, that is its own yeah. topic. It's just, like, I remember the skull, like, the way the zombies are animated in this. Yes. And I don't know. Guys. There's all these weird cat people in it, too. What? I've never seen it. <gasps> <laughs> it's time. There's also, so, like, this sexy local woman. I love when oh, Fred and Daphne beef. Are you guys saying that you want to fuck zombies? No. No. I don't think I could hit. I couldn't. I'm not trying to have anything break off. Yeah. <gasps> ew, ew, mm. What about a mummy? Mummy's hot. Well, I guess I haven't watched very many mummy movies, but just the whole thing of like kind of being encased. That's it's hot. kind of sexy. Like, what if I start pulling like on that? Yeah. Exactly. What if I Which... start pulling on and you unravel <laughs> his penis? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's suddenly so much smaller. <laughs> Speaking of so much smaller, the Britney Spears. Where are you going with this? Autobiography that she's releasing. She says, the context is she's having sex with Justin Timberlake. And she's like, you know, yada yada, I was getting so ready. And I tell him like, okay, you can put it in. And he says, it's already in. My world collapsed. (laughs) No! I was like... My world collapsed. My world collapsed. Her ghostwriter ate that one. Yeah, wait. My world collapsed. That's ridiculous. I know. That has nothing to do with vampires. (laughs) I mean... They kind of could collapse my world. What if a vampire bit you and you were like, is it like in? And they're like... Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> like, their mouth is on their, on your neck. No, no, they have a Transylvania no, no, no. accent. They're like, yeah, Wait, we didn't talk about Hotel Transylvania. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I've never seen that. <laughs> I just feel like maybe this is in the same way that you can't imagine a world that's not built on capitalism. I can't imagine a monster that's sexier than a vampire. Yeah, I don't... Okay, so werewolves don't actually do it for me. I announced that. <laughs> Controversial statement from Rouge. That, so I'm, like, I'm sorry. I feel sorry for you. Yeah. I I sorry. love a beast that's not a werewolf. Like, when yeah. Hal turns into that fucked up bird... Who? Hal from Hal Moving. Oh, Hal Moving oh okay, Hansel. okay, yeah. Mr. Hal. <laughs> that's my husband, like, so... <laughs> any kind of, like, transformation I love. I love so do you like the wolf? I love the wolf. I love the vampire. There was a movie that I watched as a young child on... It was a Disney Channel original movie, and I believe it was called The 13th Year. It, the story was like, in your 13th year, you begin to turn into a merman. Oh. I was not expecting that. That's actually... I would hate that, personally. Like, I can't even swim, so... There, like, this kid... Like, the kid in the movie, it, he was on the swim team... Oh, he was a good swimmer him. anyway. Okay. But then he started getting like webbed fingers and then he started getting gills and something like like pre-puberty me saw something about that transformation and was like, what is happening to my body? So What's th- happening to his body? So What's happening to my body? This brings me to full circle. Thinking of horses. <laughs> Horse transformation. The final frontier of cryptid sexuality oh my god me and arusa piaf piaf uh, and it was so good piaf was erotic does she maybe fully... i should go back and read book two in the sleeping beauty series now that i've seen piaf actually yeah because <laughs> maybe i will get it more now so Anne rice is dead right yeah 
Rip How Ledger. can we contact her and get her to write a horse transformation erotic novel? Oh my she, god. She probably already has. I never finished that second book. And Rice, I offer my body to you as a vessel. <laughs> Stop <laughs> it! I, my god. I, I Molly! <laughs> her, her hair's changing into a fucking ass ball. <laughs> I will write the next great horse transformation quartet. Like, well, I'm yes. imagining a girl transforms into a horse and she has to, like, assimilate into horse society and she meets this rugged stallion. Oh, boy. And they're, like, running through the pastures. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Piaf, there, in the interview for Piaf that I was reading, the director talks about how she was really fascinated with centaurs. And that is why... A lot of the <laughs> game is shaking his head. You don't like centaurs? No, because the origin of the centaur is like horrific rape. Uh, like oh that's shit. the purpose of the centaur is to uh, inflict a horrific rape. That's so scary. Yeah. I only know about the one guy that trained uh, fucking Achilles. Oh yeah, well he was the nice of, one. May I say well. he was a little faggy with it. <laughs> <laughs> he was not. He was not believing that all women were victims. He was a sapiosexual, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> what the literal fuck? <laughs> well, okay, I just remembered that I learned the word miscegenation for this episode and I never fucking used it, you guys. And I, just, I thought it was pronounced miscegenation. <laughs> to which I was like, is that barstool sports for women? <laughs> miscagnation. Miscagnation. This, this episode goes out to the miscagnation. Yeah. <laughs> it's really late, guys. It's actually yeah. not really late, but we were kind of haggard. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode five of The Naval Gaze. We love you so much. Wait, five, we're slaying. We're literally slaying so hard. We would really, really, truly love to hear from you. So get on your computers, get on your tablets on your phones and fire up an email to us at the at gmail.com and if there's ever anything you guys want us to talk about we're open to suggestions for sure yeah send us a cryptic cryptic <laughs> <laughs> is that a dick pic from stop a <laughs> send us a cryptic spooky message yes in the, the spirit of halloween send us a picture of what's on your nightstand right now <laughs> okay good night <laughs>